All right. Everybody should have a sheet, and at the top it should say Mark 8, 1 through 21. If you don't have one of those sheets, maybe you can throw your hand up and we can get you one. There's some floating around. Got one guy back there. (laughs) You take that. Thank you. So I'm really glad to uh, get to share this passage of Scripture with you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 21. And uh, most of you know this, but I'll say it anyways. We're uh, just walking through Mark right now, passage by passage. You guys know that. Um, I do want to start off just by asking you this about a question about treasuring God's Word. Do you treasure His Word? And specifically, do you treasure this gospel, the gospel of Mark? Do you love it? He loved the Word of God. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story that I read this week. It's about a lady uh, from France, a blind lady, that found a, uh, in Braille, found a Gospel of Mark, which is why the story stuck out to me, because we're in Mark right now. That's where I'm at studying a lot. But in Braille, she finds Mark, and uh, this latest blind lady from France, and she just starts, you know, obviously with her fingers reading this thing over and over again. And she's just reading it, fingers going over those letters over and over again. And eventually to the point to where her fingertips got so callous that she could barely understand what she was reading. So in an attempt to resensitize her fingers, she, she tries to cut off some of the ends. And of course, that was a bad idea. It made it more calloused. And so she starts, she starts thinking through, and I, you know, the writer says here that after that happened and she couldn't feel those letters anymore, this is what the writer says, says, She felt that she must now give up her beloved book of Mark. And weeping, she pressed it to her lips, saying, Farewell, farewell, sweet word of my Savior. To her surprise, her lips, more delicate than her fingers, discerned the form of the letters. All night she she perused with her lips the book of Mark and overflowed with joy at this new acquisition. Do you love the Word of God? Do you treasure this book of Mark? The more I'm in this book, the book of Mark, the more I take pleasure in this thing. This is an amazing book that we get to dive into. Let's pray, and then we're going to walk into this, this particular passage here. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 21. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. God, many times You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word, and I praise You, God. Thank You for doing that. And God, I ask You to do it again. As we read this passage about You, Lord, we talk about this, God. As I preach Your Word, help me, God. God, reveal Yourself during this time to every heart. Thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have you ever known someone that knows the facts about something, but they just don't seem to get it. They understand, they understand something, but they don't really understand. You ever been, ever known somebody like that? Ever been like that? In this passage that we're in today, we're going to bump into this sort of thing, really all through the Gospel of Mark, but even in this passage today, what we're going to run into in these verses are Pharisees that just don't get it. They don't get it. Jesus has done so much in front of them to show them who He is, and they just don't get it. They don't understand. And then we're going to run into some disciples. These are saved people, disciples of Jesus, who have an amazing miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 just right in front of their eyes, and they don't get it. They just don't understand. They understand, but they don't really understand. They know the facts, but they don't really get it. Now, how do you explain this sort of thing? And before we head into the passage, I just want to kind of lay a a little foundation, a little groundwork for how do you understand that sort of thing. And here's the way I understand it. Spiritual understanding, spiritual seeing, spiritual hearing. Spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, this is what we're talking about, okay? Now, to explain that, let me make kind of a distinction. 
You've got natural understanding, natural seeing, natural hearing. That's your eyes, that's your ears, your understanding. And then you've got spiritual understanding, seeing, and hearing. One of the first places that I ever saw this idea, you say, what am I talking about? This is one of the first places in the Bible I, I, I ever uh, came across this. And you can hold your place and turn with me to Deuteronomy 29. I want you to see this, a distinction. There's this natural understanding, this natural seeing, this natural hearing, but then there's something deeper. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 says this. Just hold your place there in Mark 8. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 says, Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen and the signs and those great wonders. So he points them back to Egypt. And what God did in that place, remember those ten plagues? And he says, your eyes have seen it. Your eyes have seen this thing. And then you read verse 4 and he says, Yet the Lord God has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear this very day. And I read that and I thought, that is interesting. How many pairs of eyes do I have? How many pairs of ears do I have? And right here it says, you've seen these things with your eyes and yet God's not given you eyes to see. There's this natural understanding, seeing, hearing, and there's this spiritual understanding, seeing, or hearing. Now, the, the, way, the way I divide it, natural and spiritual, comes from a couple places in the Scripture I'll mention quickly. Colossians 1.9 actually calls it, don't flip there, but it actually calls it spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14 says, talks about the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. So you've got natural, you've got spiritual. Well, you have your natural eyes. Your natural ears, you have them. And yet you have these spiritual eyes and these spiritual ears. What's that talking about? Do you understand that distinction? Okay. Now let me go to another distinction. It's right here on your sheet. You have permanent spiritual blindness and deafness. That's those spiritual eyes, spiritual ears that can't see, can't hear. You have permanent spiritual blindness versus temporary spiritual blindness or spiritual Deafness. Now, what do I mean by that? You don't have to flip there, but if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 19, this is what it says about lost people. This is, this is a permanent spiritual blindness. Listen to what it says about them. Having their understanding darkened, the blindness of their hearts. Their hearts can't see. Their hearts are blind. This is the way it describes people that will spend eternity in hell. Therefore, this is permanent Blindness, permanent deafness. You also have a temporary blindness, a temporary deafness. You can see that like in Ephesians 1.18. Listen to Ephesians 1.18. Now this is towards believers. This is towards saved people. This is people who have had their eyes opened. And yet Paul prays for them that the eyes of your understanding or the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So you see the difference? You have a permanent spiritual blindness and deafness that leads to eternity in the lake of fire, and you have a temporary spiritual blindness or deafness that even we have today. It's where we partially understand. Now we see in part, but we're moving toward, we're growing in our sight. Our sight is increasing, and one day we're going to see Him face to face. Now this way of thinking is all over the Bible. Okay, I gave you some verses there on your sheet. It says, uh, uh, we won't go through all those, but I'll give you one there. In that group, it says it's, uh, Jeremiah 5.21, listen to this. Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes yet see not, who have ears and hear not. And eight times in the book of Revelation, you hear this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Now surely he didn't think he was writing to people that had no natural ears, right? No, he didn't think that. But he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's talking about these spiritual ears. Now, this idea of spiritual understanding, seeing, hearing, is very central in the Bible. It's very, very important all throughout the Scriptures. Every single person falls into one of three categories. 
Either they have a they have a permanent spiritual blindness, and there's eternity in hell after that. That's where that's headed. That's eternal spiritual blindness, or they're in temporary spiritual blindness, deafness, meaning meaning they it's, it's like believers, it's saved people that their eyes have been opened, but there's more for their eyes to be opened and see until one day they see him face to face, which is the third the third category, which is those who see with full maturity. They see clearly. They in heaven and they see Him face to face. These things are very central, very important. I want you to think about this, okay? If you just think about answers to the questions, I want you to see that how important this, this idea of spiritual understanding, spiritual seeing is, okay? If you think about the answers to these questions, okay? If, if you are not saved, if you're not converted, why? Your eyes have not been opened. Your heart's not been opened. You, your ears, your spiritual ears have not been opened. You can't see the beauty of Christ. See how central that is? I would have put, put it a different question. If you're not treasuring and worshiping Christ Jesus, why? Oh, it's, it's spiritual blindness. You can't see Him. If you could only see Him in His glory, you would worship Him. You would treasure Him. If you don't run, just run, just run away trembling from sin. If you don't do that, why? Oh, it's spiritual blindness. You don't see the destruction in sin. It's just not, your eyes aren't open to that. You, you don't have the spiritual understanding to see that that sin is going to kill you and therefore you don't run. You see how central this is? If you don't boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, why? Oh, your eyes are not open to see that, that people are headed toward eternity in hell. That's where they're going and you've got this glorious gospel and your eyes aren't open to see the glory of the gospel you see how essential this is? Or if you turn it the other way, if you're saved here, you're converted, if that's true about you, why? God's opened the eyes of your heart. He's opened your heart like He opened Lydia's in Acts 16. If you're treasuring and you're worshiping Christ, it's because God's opening your eyes to see Him. Your ears are being opened. The spiritual understanding is there. Do you see how central, how important this is in every aspect? I want you to see this. That there's a connection, just, just to get across how important spiritual hearing, spiritual seeing is. There's a connection to you having spiritual understanding, seeing and hearing that's connected to worship. It's connected to worship. Here's what I mean by that. If you read the story uh, where, where Jesus fed the 5,000, you remember that? And really it was twenty to 25,000, but 5,000 men. If you read that story... When that story's over in Mark chapter 6, it says they did not understand. And you think, they didn't understand? What do you mean they didn't understand? They, they saw it. They actually passed the bread out to thousands of people over and over again. What do you mean they didn't understand? And then Jesus, to fix this lack of understanding, this hard-heartedness, He shows up walking on the water and He shows them that He's the great I Am and they worship. What was missing is they had an understanding, a natural understanding, but it didn't lead them to worship. There's When they see Him, when they really see Him, you worship. Spiritual understanding, spiritual seeing is connected to you seeing Him and worshiping Him. Let me give you another example, okay? Spiritual seeing, understanding hearing is connected to faith. Real, genuine faith where you trust Him. Faith that kills anxiety. Faith that kills fear. You trust Him. Here's what I mean. In the passage we're going to be in today, he's going to, he's going to come out and he's going to feed now 4,000, which is really 16 to 20,000, and it's 4,000 men. He's going to feed these people miraculously through just a little bit of resources. And yet these disciples, a little bit later, is going to say, Jesus is going to ask them, how is it you don't understand? That's the last verse in our section today. How is it you don't understand? Jesus, what do you mean they don't understand? They saw it. They actually passed it out for you. What do you mean they don't understand? And the idea is there is they did not have faith. They didn't believe. In fact, the beginning, the account in Matthew, he looks at him and says, oh, you of little faith. They didn't trust him. They saw it. They knew the facts, but it didn't lead them to trust him, to have faith in him, faith that kills anxiety. And therefore, the spiritual eyes were not open. Okay, so spiritual understanding, spiritual seeing, spiritual hearing. With that foundation laid, we're going to walk into this section of Scripture, Mark chapter 8. Verse 1 through 21. Now, just to help with the, the order in your mind, the first 10 verses, chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, 
We're going to see Jesus feeding the multitudes again. In verses 11 through 13, we're going to see Jesus dealing with the Pharisees again. In verses 14 through 21, we're going to see Jesus teaching and correcting his disciples again. So let's start in verse 1 through 10. We're going to read that together and then walk into it. Verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their houses, to their own houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he set them also. He said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So there's the feeding of the 4,000. Let's start. Let's go through it phrase by phrase. First phrase says, in those days. That's how it starts. In those days. It gives us a time period. And what does it mean by in those days? This is during the time of Jesus' Gentile. He moves out to the Gentiles. Do you remember this? Most of Jesus' ministry has been done in Israel among Jews. In fact, He even told His disciples one time that He was not sent except to the lost sheep of Israel. Only go to the lost sheep of Israel. He said the same thing to the Syrophoenician lady. I haven't been sent except to the lost sheep of Israel. That right here, we in Mark, we see a big pivot starting in Mark chapter 7. A big pivot in Jesus' ministry where He heads outside of Israel to the Gentiles. And as He goes to Gentile territory, He's showing Himself to be the Savior. Not just of the Jews, but the global Savior. The Savior, Savior of all the earth. By His blood, you guys know this, He's going to redeem a people to Himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth. And now He's headed out. He's, he's in this Gentile region. And in those days is when this story shows up. Which, by the way, is a big point of the repetition here. You say, well, we just got two chapters ago a story about Jesus feeding the, the thousands. And now we're getting another story, almost worded the same, of Jesus feeding the thousands. Why? Well, one reason is this. He's a Savior. He's a global Savior. Every nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth. And now He's doing it towards the Gentiles. Next phrase. The multitude being very great. The multitude being very great. Okay, so there's large multitudes of people, mostly Gentiles here, and they're gathered around Jesus. Now, why are these multitudes so massive? Why are they so large? Well, if you read the, the passage just before this, which Dustin taught on last week, Jesus just took a man and He healed He could not hear and He healed him. He couldn't speak and He healed him. And now that man can hear for the first time and He's speaking for the first time and He just goes everywhere proclaiming Christ. And at the end of that passage, it says that everybody was astonished and they said, man, Jesus is doing all things well. Well, this sort of thing was happening a lot. In fact, if you, if you read the same account, the exact same account that's found in Matthew, Matthew zooms out. See, see in Mark, we get that one specific healing, but in Matthew, it zooms out to the bigger picture. And listen to what it says, Matthew 15, verse 30. The great multitudes came to Him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and He healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So why, are there so, why is there such large multitudes around Jesus when we get to Mark chapter 8, verse 1? Because Jesus is healing multitudes of mute, blind, crippled. He's, just, he's the, the deaf. He's just... He's just Healing these people and multitudes are... Can you imagine seeing that? You walk up on people that could not hear, now they can hear. They couldn't see, now they can see. Can you imagine the joy, the excitement, 
The amazement over Jesus right here. You walk up, just imagine, you walk up to this massive group of people, thousands of people, and there's a guy over there. People saying, look at that guy. He couldn't see just a minute ago, and now he's seen for the first time. Some little girl says, my daddy's been crippled a whole life, and look at him. He's, he's leaping now. He's running and dancing right now. Look at him. This would have been awesome to see. This would have been an amazing thing. And, and according to the account of Matthew 15, it says they were glorifying the God of Israel for these things. This would have been, if you think about walking up on these people going ballistic with excitement over what Christ is doing, this would have been a little glimpse into heaven. Just a little glimpse into heaven. You think about it. These people having their eyes open and for the first time, what are they seeing? The face of Jesus. Ears open for the first time. First thing they hear is the voice of Jesus. Their tongues loose for the first time. And the first thing they're doing is praising Jesus. Legs healed. First time. Standing up. Leaping for Christ. This is the first thing they're doing. This is a little glimpse into heaven we see right here. When you, and and I, want you to, I want you to see that, that this is an exciting, astonishment type time right here. Now, how big were these multitudes? Mark 8 verse 9 says about 4,000. About 4,000. Now we know that's just the men. If you read the account over in Matthew 15, verse 38, it says, Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Okay, so as I said earlier, if you take that together, you've got about sixteen to 20,000 people. This is a massive group of people. So you think about this massive group of people coming together. This is, uh, this is, almost, this is almost a city of Pearl all together. It's about 25,000 of them, I believe, in Pearl. All together. This is the city of Pearl all together. And they are going ballistic with joy, worshiping God. And this is a small glimpse into heaven. But then next we get a little phrase that reminds us that this is not heaven. A little phrase. Look at the next phrase. And having nothing to eat. This great multitude, this massive group of people, thousands of people, and it says they have nothing to eat. According to verse 2, they've been three days with Jesus and nothing to eat. According to verse 3, these people were hungry. These people were hungry. They were so famished that Jesus didn't want to send them home. You can read verse 2 and 3. And Jesus did not want to send them home because He was worried that they would collapse on the road or they would, they would faint Along the way as they head home, this was a big deal. This is a massive crowd of hungry people. So what does Jesus do? And look at the last part of verse 1. We're going to read to verse 3. Jesus called His disciples to Him. And He said to them, I have compassion on the multitude." Because they now continue with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So Jesus looks at this massive crowd of hungry people, and the first thing he says is, I have compassion on these people. He has compassion on these people. That word, this Greek word, compassion out here, is literally moved deep in your bowels, moved. Maybe modern day would be, I feel a deep love for these people, deep in my soul. He's moved with compassion. Have you ever felt this kind of love, this kind of compassion for somebody? A child, a spouse, a friend, a parent? Have you ever felt this way where you love them, you have compassion, that it affects you physically? And this is what our Lord felt right here. It says He felt compassion for this multitude of hungry people. Oh, the love and the compassion of King Jesus. You think, isn't it enough, Jesus, that you came on a rescue mission to save them? You came to the earth to save pagan Gentiles like this. And isn't it enough that you allowed them to come around and hear the free message of salvation? And isn't it enough that you even healed them physically? He didn't have to do that. And He heals them even physically. And yet Jesus takes His compassion His love a step further. I don't even want them to go home on an empty stomach. I don't even want them to go home hungry. Our Lord is full of compassion. He's moved with compassion toward these hungry people. He cares. I want you to see in this that Jesus cares. He cares, He cares, He cares. He loves. He loves His people. He loves these multitudes of hungry people. And I want you to see this. And here's something I want you to see that's interesting, okay? Interesting to me. Jesus knows that He's about to feed these people. He knows that. And yet He's moved with compassion for these people. 
There's a similar idea of this in, in the story of Lazarus, right? Jesus knows. Lazarus is laying in a tomb. He's dead. Jesus knows that he's about to raise him from the dead. He knows in just a few hours he'll be walking with Lazarus. And yet it says, it says in that passage that Jesus is weeping. And he's groaning in himself. And all the people look at Jesus and say, look how much he loved him. Isn't this interesting? That Jesus knows in just a few hours these people are going to have their bellies full and yet He still looks on their hunger and He he is moved with compassion. Now there's implications for us. There's implications for us with that idea. Number one, Jesus knows what? If you're here and you're converted, you're in Christ Jesus, you're a disciple of His, He knows that one day you're going to have fullness of joy at His right hand pleasures forevermore. He knows that. And yet He still looks on your earthly sorrow with compassion and pity and love. He knows that. He doesn't say, oh, buck up, man. You're going to have heaven one day. He doesn't do that. He still he knows what you have coming and yet He still looks on your earthly sorrows with pity and love. Number two, another implication will be this. May we be like Him. May we be those who remind each other often of the eternity that's coming for us, all those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is eternal life coming, that there's fullness of joy coming. May we remind each other often of that, and yet at the same time, may we weep with those who weep. May we sorrow with those who sorrow. This is the love and the compassion of Jesus. Listen to this this little poem written over a thousand years ago about the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Do you know this love of Jesus? Do you know the compassion and love of of your Lord. Do you really get it? Have your spiritual eyes been opened and you see the love and compassion of Jesus and you trust Him and you worship Him? Do you really get it? Brother and sister in Christ, let the love and compassion of Jesus be seared in your mind. I mean just seared in your heart. If you know of a man named Richard Wormbrand, Richard Wormbrand spent many years in solitary confinement being tortured for his faith because he preached the gospel. And all those years in solitary confinement, he said they did a lot of nasty things to him, even brainwashing, even putting drugs in his food. They, they made his brain like mush while he was in solitary confinement. And he said it got to a point where he could not remember anything. He couldn't remember anything. He, the verses that used to sustain him, the promises from God that he had memorized that used to sustain him, he couldn't remember them anymore. The hymns that he used to sing, he couldn't remember them anymore. And yet at his lowest point, you know what he said? He said, I knew this thing, that there is a God and that He loves me. Let this truth be seared in your soul. God loves you. Christ Jesus loves you deep in His, deep within Him. He loves you. He feels compassion. Now I've got to say this again right here. I can't resist. Did He not prove it at the cross? Did Christ not prove it at the cross? He willingly takes on flesh. He willingly takes on a body like a man and He's on a rescue mission to save us. He willingly does that knowing that He's going to be crucified for crimes that He did not commit. Knowing that He was going to come under the wrath of God for you. That He was going to step to that cross and absorb all the punishment, all the anger and wrath of God you deserve. And He took it on to Himself. He did that. Did He not prove His love? Do not prove His compassion at the cross. Open your spiritual eyes. Do not close them to the compassion and love of Jesus. Now, from this little section in Mark 8, I want to, I want to highlight one more thing before we move on. Verse 1, at the very end of verse 1, it says, Jesus called His disciples to Him. Why did He do that? Here's Jesus with compassion in Him and he wants, to, he wants to feed these multitudes and He's got all the power to do it and all the pity to do it. He wants to do it. And why is the first thing He, do, he does is call His disciples to Himself? Surely He could have rained down manna from heaven, right? On His own. Or as Dustin said, drop the bread bomb. Right? 
He could have done that, but he doesn't do it. What does he do? He says he calls his disciples to himself. He wants to involve these 12 men. He wants to involve them in what's about to happen. The Lord desires to use us. The Lord desires to use us. That should be extremely encouraging for you as a disciple of Jesus, that the Lord wants to use His disciples. You remember Mark 3.14? Whenever it first... Mark 3.14, the disciples were appointed for the first time. The twelve were appointed by Jesus. And He said He appointed them. Why? That they might be with Him and that He might send them out. So He wanted them with Him so that He might send them out. And we see that right here. He has His disciples with Him and He calls them in and He expresses to them His compassion over these people. He wants to conform them into His image. He wants them, the disciples, to have the same compassion. And then He's going to send them out. But before He sends them out, He's got to teach them that their weak little resources they have can be put into the hands of Jesus and feed thousands. So He's going to bring them in tight, teach them these lessons, and then send them out. And my prayer is that we would see the same. That we would catch the heart. We'd be brought in close to Christ, even through this story. And we'd catch the compassion of Jesus. And we'd catch the faith in Jesus that He'll use our little weak resources for His glory. And that we would be transformed. Now, their response to Jesus in verse 4 is kind of shocking. Let's look at their response in 8 verse 4. Read it with me. Then His disciples answered Him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Isn't that shocking? How can they said, how can how can you satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And you're going, what did you just ask? Now, why is this shocking? Because they've just seen Jesus do it. They just saw him in Mark chapter 6. Feed thousands of people in the wilderness, thousands of Jews. Why could he not feed thousands of Gentiles in, in the wilderness? You would think at this point they're getting ready to say, Jesus says, Jesus says he wants to, he wants to feed them. You think they're getting ready to just say, Well, Jesus, just do what you did last time. Just do what you did. And they don't do it. In fact, you remember last time, they, after he fed the thousands in Mark chapter 6, the next section says, like I said earlier, that they didn't understand and their heart was hardened. So Jesus scares the living daylights out of them by walking on water and forces them to worship Him. So you think, surely, surely they would say, Jesus, just do what you did last time. You walked on water and you fed thousands last time. But they don't do that. They say, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now Jesus is going to respond to them. He's going to respond to them with a question that they've actually heard before. Listen to the question. This is in verse 5. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? That is exactly what he asked them when he fed the 5,000 back in Mark 6. You think light bulbs would be going off. He said, how many loaves do you have? Jesus is very purposefully repeating a miracle right here. Okay, I want you to behold just... See the the patience and the long-suffering of Jesus. He does not lash out at them at this moment, but instead Jesus takes them through the same lesson again. He gives them a makeup exam. Jesus is so patient with us. Jesus is so long-suffering towards His disciples. I want you to think about this, okay? How many of you heard when Dustin taught on the feeding of the 5,000? You don't have to raise your hand, but think about it. How many heard this? Okay? And how many of you were encouraged with the creator, the creator power of Jesus over the universe? How many of you were encouraged by that? And how many of you were encouraged that, hey, I need to take my little, my little weak, meager resource and if I take them to Jesus, He'll use it to feed thousands. How many of you were just walking out full of faith, encouraged over that? And then how many of us about two, three, four days, maybe a week later, walked out of our house downcast? God can't use little resources like what I have. God won't use me. I don't know enough. I can't do enough. I'm not wise enough. How many did that? Listen to me. The Lord's patient with you. He's long-suffering with you, and He wants to teach you this lesson again. In fact, I'm going I'm to mention some reminders here in just a minute for that same lesson. If Jesus did it in Mark, and Mark recorded it that way, I'm going to give you some similar lessons. Do you get it? Ask yourself. As we go through these reminders, 
I've got five observations that I want to pull out of verse five, this miracle in verse 5 through 10. Five observations I want to pull out. And I want you to ask yourself as we talk through this, as I, as I, as I highlight these, I want you to ask yourself, do you get it? Do you really get it? Are your spiritual eyes open? Do you understand? Having eyes, do you see? Having ears, do you hear? Five observations. Observation number one, and these are on your sheet, by the way. Number one, Jesus gets the disciples to do an inventory of their supplies in order to highlight the impossibility of what He's about to do. Let's read verse 5 here again. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Inventory. They said, seven. So, so how can they feed 20, near 20,000 people from seven loaves? And we're not even talking about like the loaves like you think of. We're thinking of like little oval-shaped, almost biscuit-type loaves you can hold in your hands. You can hold this in your hands. How are they going to feed 20,000 people with this? Can you imagine having... Maybe Peter has seven loaves in his hand, a few little sardine-type fish in this hand, and he's looking at 20... He's looking at pearl? <laughs> Can you imagine this? He's going, what do I... What? This is, this is impossible. You can't do this. And I want you to know that I think he wants them to see that. He makes them do the inventory to see this, that this is impossible, what he's about to do. And the truth is that God calls us to do impossible things. You know that? If you're reading your Bible, God calls you to do things that are impossible. Let me give an example. Acts 26, verse 18, God says this to Paul. Acts 26, 18, He says this. He says, I want to send you, Paul, to these people in order, listen to this, in order to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might have forgiveness of sins. You want me to do What? You want me to, oh, I can't open their eyes. And yet he sends them. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes, the impossibility. Or how about this one? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I don't even have to say anything. You can't do that. You could try. This is impossible. How do I obey these commands? Let me give you one more. Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all the nations. Impossible. Make disciples of all the nations? I can't even name all the people groups on earth. There are people groups on earth. There are nations I can't even legally get into. We can't legally get into the nations. How are we going to? This is impossible, Lord. And if we get into the nations, we don't even know the language. And if we learn the language, we sure enough can't save their soul. We can't open their eyes. Lord, this is impossible. How are we going to do this? And you want us to do it among all the nations? You want to do this among near 6,000 unreached people groups on this earth? And you want us to make disciples of them all? This is impossible. This is impossible. We're too weak. We're not wise enough. We don't know enough. Lord, we're just a small church in Mississippi with meager resources. This is impossible. And I think the Lord wants us to see this. He calls us to do impossible things and He wants us to see the weakness and our inability to actually do them. And we see this in Mark chapter 8. Go see how many loaves you got. And they see. Number two. Second observation. It says He took the seven loaves. Jesus took the seven loaves. Look at verse 6. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves. Showing the disciples that their meager little resources when in the hands of Jesus can make a massive impact. Okay, He took the loaves into his hand. Meager supplies in the hands of Jesus can make a massive impact. The meager supplies in the hands of the disciples, useless. Imagine them standing there. Looking at 20 plus thousand people. Nothing. This is you, these meager resources I have are just useless. But when they extend their hand and they give these to Christ, there's potential there to feed thousands. Thousands. And He wants us to see this. This should be a huge encouragement to us. Bring, you got any wisdom? You got any knowledge? Your little bit of wisdom and knowledge? Our little bit of wisdom and knowledge? Bring it to Christ and see what He does with it. 
Our little bit of power or our lack thereof, bring it to Christ. See what He does with it. This little church, pray for this little church, Grace Community Church, with, we, with little meager resources, and I wonder what the Lord would do. Third observation. It says He broke the loaves and it says He gave them to His disciples. Right there in verse 6. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to His disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus could have just multiplied this bread just everywhere and said, come and get it. Just come on and get it. But He doesn't do that. He calls His disciples to Himself and He uses them like waiters. And He starts handing out this bread. He starts breaking it and handing it out. He's putting it into their basket and they're taking it out to feed the thousands. Try to imagine the scene. Everybody's sitting down on the ground. Thousands of people. This would have taken a while to get everybody seated. Everybody sits down on the ground. He takes the seven loaves in His hand and He begins to thank God. He begins to thank God. And as we said with the 5,000, people may be looking at Him going, is He about to eat this meal in front of us and nobody else has anything to eat? And He's thanking God and then He gets done and He breaks this bread and He gives it to His disciples into their baskets to go deliver to the people. And this would have taken some time, right? Basket is full and they take it out, deliver it out as much as they can. They come back with their baskets. They get them refilled by Jesus. And this takes time. And it happens over and over again. And every time they come to the Lord Jesus with their supplies and they express their need to Him and they come to Him with these empty baskets, He fills the basket and they go, fill, and they go to the multitudes. And they feed the multitudes over and over again. This would have been amazing. You think of how this should have seared their understanding. This should have just seared their hearts and said, man, this, I'm encouraged that God will do something like this. It should have seen the creator power of Jesus. That He's just creating bread from nothing. should have seared their hearts. This is amazing. And I want you to listen to me. He wants to use you. He gave it to His disciples. He wants to use you for His glory. He desires to do that. Bring your weaknesses, bring your shortcomings, and trust Him with them. He wants to bring glory to His name through weak disciples and meager resources. Fourth observation. Seven large baskets. Keep reading with me, verse 8 and 9. So they ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000 and He sent them away. What I think we need to see here is that the Lord has no lack of supply. He's got no lack of supply. Seven large baskets. These are not like the baskets, the 12 baskets that were taken up in the first feeding of Mark chapter 6. This is actually a different word. And that's why it says large baskets. These are like hampers. This is, the, this is the basket that Paul in Acts 9 was let down in the wall in. These are man-sized baskets. Okay? And they're just filled. Seven baskets full, basketfuls of fragments. Our Lord has no lack of supply. You see that? The Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Our God is not shorthanded. You see that? He has no lack of supply. Every single person there was satisfied. Not one person left hungry. Last one. Number five, fifth observation. Through this miracle, Jesus is revealing Himself to be the Messiah. The Christ. He's showing Himself to be the main point. He's showing Himself to be the Messiah. He's showing Himself to be the Christ. You think about it. All of this gospel is, is about to culminate at a certain point where His disciples, it's coming soon, His disciples look at Him and they, He says to them, who do you say I am? And they say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And the whole gospel is about to culminate to that point and then He's going to start heading toward the cross. Okay? So this miracle, this miracle is meant to show that. When Jesus was doing the feeding of the 20,000 plus Jewish people in Mark chapter, chapter 6, He was revealing Himself to be the Messiah. He was revealing Himself to be the Christ. He's the one spoken of in the Old Testament that would come and save the Jewish people. He's the one that was spoken in the Old Testament, the shepherd king of the Jews. Do you remember that when Dustin taught? 
the better Moses. He's revealing himself to be this. He's the one in the Old Testament, God in the flesh, who would come to die for the sins of his people. And he's revealing himself to be that one. And what Jesus is doing right here in this feeding of near 20,000 people to the Gentiles is he's revealing himself to be the one spoken of in the Old Testament that would bless all nations. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. He's revealing Himself to be the one that would rise from the grave and be the King of the whole universe and every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess Christ is Lord and He's showing Himself to be this right here. Now when the lesson's over, He puts them in the boat and they leave. Let's read the last couple verses. Verse 9 and 10. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. He sent them away. So He sent them away. Immediately they got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, before we move on to these next section that's coming up here, okay? It's on the back of your sheet. Before we move on there, let's just recap quickly. He reveals himself in this story to be who? Who does Christ reveal himself to be? The Messiah, the Christ, the Shepherd King, the Global Savior, the Creator God, the Compassionate One. The powerful healer, the one with patience and long suffering, and he he reveals himself to, to be the one that desires to use his disciples, his weak disciples, for his glory. Now, your spiritual eyes, they open. Are your spiritual ears open? Your spiritual understanding, you see it? You really see this right here? How are you going to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ right here? And what we're about to see is how two different groups of people respond to Jesus coming up next. Okay, let's look at the first one. Verse 11 through 13, we're going to see how the Pharisees respond. Okay, and what we're going to see is the permanent, remember the definition, the permanent spiritual blindness, the permanent spiritual deafness of the Pharisees. Permanent as in, They're not growing in their life. They're not growing in their seeing of Him and and their maturity in seeing Him, but instead it's permanent blindness and it leads to eternal destruction. Let's read it. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven, testing Him. But He sighed deeply in His spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. So here we see the response of the Pharisees. They're arguing with him. They're disputing with him. It says they're demanding to see a sign that he's really the Messiah. They want to see that sign. They're testing him, it says, not in a good way, like full of faith, testing if something's right. This is in unbelief. They want to discredit Jesus. They're they're testing Him. They want to see a sign that He is the Messiah. And this would have been incredibly offensive to Jesus. Has He not done enough? Has He not shown sign after sign after sign and they ignore it? He fed 5,000 with just a little boy's lunch sack and He fed thousands, 5,000 men, over 20,000 people. He fed them from that and yet they still don't believe. He feeds 4,000 right here and yet they still don't believe. You remember in Mark chapter 2, the paralytic man came to Jesus. And when he came to Jesus, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. And after saying that, people start getting a little riled up about it. Who's he think he's God? And he says, hey, I'll tell you what. And he says, I'll raise that man from, from, his, uh, from being paralyzed. I'll actually raise him up where he can walk again. And it'll show you that I have the power to forgive sins. And he does it. Has he not shown sign after sign after sign to show that he is the Messiah, and yet they still reject Him. These men close their spiritual eyes to Jesus. They close their spiritual eyes to the truth. So how does does Jesus then respond to them? And before we get to, before it even gives us the words that He says, I don't want you to miss these two words, okay? If you're reading right there in the Scriptures, okay? He says this. Verse 12, But He sighed deeply in His Spirit. So before we even get... So how does Jesus going to respond to these men that just close their spiritual eyes? These men that want to test Him and say, show us a sign that you're really the Messiah. How does Jesus respond to them? And the first thing we see is He sighs deeply in His Spirit. This means, this word, this sighing is a groaning. This is a deep groaning in Him. 
If you remember in the section before, Jesus did this same sigh, same word. He sighed when He saw this man that couldn't hear. So He thinks about sin and the physical effects that come through sin in this man, and He sighs in His, in his sorrow. And yet right here, he, it's a stronger word. It says He deeply sighs. It's a stronger word here toward a hard-hearted sinner toward His salvation. And He deeply sighs. What you see here is a, a mark of sorrow and grief over somebody's sin. Now, J.C. Ryle, J.C. Ryle gives a very probing application right here, okay? So let me give it to you. I'm going to read this. It's, a little, it's got a little length on it, so, so hear me out. J.C. Ryle, listen to this about that deep sigh. There was a deep meaning in that sigh. It came from a heart which mourned over the ruin that these wicked men were bringing on their own souls. Enemies as they were, Jesus could not behold them hardening themselves in unbelief without sorrow. He looks at them with sorrow. The feeling which our Lord Jesus Christ here expressed will always be the feeling of true Christians. Grief over the sins of others is one leading evidence of true grace. The man who is really converted will always regard the unconverted with pity and concern. As the great head feels, so feels the members. They all grieve when they see sin. Let us leave this passage with solemn self-inquiry. Do we know anything of likeness to Christ says Raul, and fellow feeling with him. Do we feel hurt and pain and sorrowful when we see men continuing in sin and continuing in unbelief? Do we feel grieved and concerned about the state of the unconverted? These are heart-searching questions and demand serious consideration. There are few sure marks of an unconverted heart than carelessness and indifference about the souls of others. It's pretty probing, right? So here we see Jesus. He's grieved over their sin. He's grieved over their hardness of heart. We see this deep sigh. And then we see Him look at them and He says, no sign's coming your way. You're looking for a sign, but no sign will be given to you. And then it says He left them. He just left. Verse 13, He left them. And so Mark is recording this interaction with the Pharisees like this is the final straw. See, in the past, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus coming at these disciples being hot and fiery with them. We've seen Jesus explain, doing signs and wonders and explaining to them that their sin is deep in the soul, is deep in their heart. In Mark 7, 1-23, and then right here He just says, it's like the final straw, no, sin, no sign will be given to you, and He just leaves. This is a sad way for the Pharisees to spend all of eternity. It's a sad way. Jesus laid down His life for sin. Jesus laid down His life for sin and yet they reject Him and spend eternity in hell. It's a sad way to depart. They reject Him and they, they reject Him and head towards eternal destruction while Jesus sighs deeply and grieves over their sin. It should remind you of Mark chapter 10. Remember that guy? The rich young ruler who came and Jesus said, forsake all that you have. Go sell all that you have. Forsake it and come after Me. But that guy loved his stuff. He loved his stuff and he wouldn't do it. And it says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved him. And he headed right down a path of eternal destruction. This is a sad way to go. If you're here and you're not in Christ, please don't do this. Please don't do this. The one who laid down his life for you. Your only hope is in Christ Jesus who died for you. It's your only hope. Please don't reject it. Please don't reject it and just walk away. He grieves over your hardness of heart. He sorrows. So the Pharisees' response to Jesus can be summarized. Hard hearts, permanent spiritual blindness, and rejecting Jesus for eternal blindness. What about the disciples? How do the disciples respond to Jesus? And let's look at verse 14 through 21, our last section. Think about it. How do the disciples, how do they respond to Christ? Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then He charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, It, it, is, 
It's because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? How is it you do not understand? So in this passage is what we see. We see a need in these disciples. These are disciples of Jesus. These are people whose eyes have been opened, and yet we see a need for a deeper understanding. We see a need for a deeper seeing, a deeper hearing. When I say deeper, I don't mean more intellectual. I mean spiritual understanding, spiritual seeing, spiritual hearing. So here's the scenario. Okay, here's a scenario we just read. The disciples are with Christ. These are His, the ones whose eyes He's opened. He's already fed the multitudes. He's already spent time correcting the Pharisees or, or speaking for a moment to the Pharisees. And now He's spending time with His disciples. He's with His disciples. And the disciples are preoccupied. They're preoccupied. They're full of anxiety over the fact that they forgot to bring bread. I don't know, maybe they remember back to the the seven man-sized hampers of bread they had. And they say, I can't believe we walked out of here with one measly loaf. And they're worried about it. They're thinking about their next meal. They're worried about their next meal. They're worried about what's for dinner. It's all they're thinking about. They're preoccupied. And then this warning comes from Jesus. And what's the warning? He looks at them and He says, Beware. He warns them, beware of the leaven, of the leaven. He uses the word leaven, and he's using it symbolically. The word leaven is this substance you put in the bread and makes it rise, or dough and makes it rise in the bread, okay? So leaven. And he says, beware of the leaven. He means doctrine. We know that from other places in the Scripture. But he decides to use this symbolic word, leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He says, beware of that. And instead of them taking that warning and remembering, okay, the Pharisees, they had this dark, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe that. And they've rejected it, their heart of hearts. And instead of taking that warning and remembering Christ and what he did for the 5,000 and what he did for the 4,000, instead of remembering that and letting it kill their anxieties, what do they do? They say, Levin. Maybe it's because we forgot to bring bread. And in yourself, you should be going, what? They're, worried about, they're, they're still worried about lunch? They're worried about their, their bread? What are they doing? And so what's Jesus do? He pelts them with nine questions. If you got the SV, it's eight questions because it combines one. But He just pelts them with these questions right here. And I want you to think about it. What Jesus is doing, He's stirring up their mind. He, he wants to come at them. He wants them to see that He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. I'm warning you about the doctrine of the Pharisees and this unbelief. This unbelief. I'm warning you about that. So He pelts them with these questions. He's, he's exposing their lack of deeper spiritual understanding. He's exposing their lack of spiritual seeing and spiritual hearing. And His aim is to open their spiritual eyes that they might see. Let's read these questions, okay? I want you to read them with me. First question. Why do you reason? Why do you reason because you have no bread? In other words, the one who... He's fed thousands just from a little bit of resource. He says, why are you worrying about bread? How can you be anxious when you're in the boat with the one who's fed almost 50,000 people from about 12 loaves? How are you worried about bread? Next question. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Do you not yet perceive or understand? The next three questions are exactly the same. They just say it a little bit different. Listen, is your heart still hard and it gets down deep? Is it a hard heart? Having eyes, here's a way to say it. Do you really understand? Here's a way to say it. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, you've got ears, but you're not hearing. You you know the facts, but you're not hearing this. He says, do you not remember? This is spiritual amnesia. Do you not remember? 
You're not remembering, he says. And then the next question, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you keep up? Keep, did you take up? So he takes their mind back to when he fed the 5,000. He says, you remember when I fed the 5,000 back there? And this is a good picture of not having natural understanding and yet lacking spiritual understanding. This is a great picture of that because what do they do? They understand the details, right? Because what's their answer? Twelve. Yeah, I remember. He says, do you remember how many? And he says, yeah, they, the disciples have natural understanding. Yeah, I remember. And they say 12, but they lack spiritual understanding. If they had spiritual understanding, they would remember what Jesus had done and they would lead them to worship Him. To worship Him. Spiritual understanding is an understanding that leads you to worship. When you really get it. Then he asked the next question. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? So now he draws their mind back to when he fed the 4,000 that we just read. He draws their mind back there. And again, this is a good picture of a difference between natural understanding and spiritual understanding because they understand the details. How many fragments did you take up? How many baskets? He says, they say seven. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. They have natural understanding, but they do not have spiritual understanding. If they had spiritual understanding, it would have led them to trust Him. Killed their anxiety. Killed their fear. Spiritual understanding is the understanding of faith. It's the hearing. Spiritual hearing is the hearing of faith. And last question, he says this. How is it you do not understand? Or some of your versions say, do you still not understand? Where's the worship? Where's the faith? You still not get it? You don't really get it what we're reading here. Do you still not understand? And that's how the scripture ends. That's how my passage today ends. Do you not understand? Did they understand the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000? Yes, in one aspect. But did they really understand? If you remember, it says they had not understood about the loaves. Didn't worship. They weren't full of faith. Let's do this. Let's close with a, a final little application here, okay? I want to talk to you about the fight. The fight for spiritual understanding. The fight for spiritual seeing. The fight for spiritual hearing. This is unnatural. It's not natural. You have to fight for this. You have to fight for the spiritual understanding, okay? So here's what I want to say to you. You must fight. You've got to fight for this because you, and not just in yourself, but in others. You think about it. If the, if, what about for the lost? If their eyes are not open, they'll go to hell forever. You've got to fight for this, for, for spiritual seeing. And for yourself. And for the church. We don't grow without this. It's how we grow. We see. We behold the glory of God and we're transformed into the same image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is how we grow. We've got to fight for spiritual seeing. Our natural eyes are just going to get older and older and older and they, they're, the seeing, the vision gets worse and worse and worse. Not with spiritual eyes. In Christ Jesus, you've got spiritual eyes and there you're supposed to see more clearly and more clearly and more clearly and now we see dimly. Now we see dimly but then face to face. This is very important. We must fight for it. Now, one little quick, there's a lot of things to say about that, but one little quick um, application on what it looks like to fight. One part of that is the effect that prayer. What is the effect that prayer has on spiritual seeing, hearing, and understanding? I'm talking about prayer. Getting along with God in a secret place. Calling out to Him constantly and spending a long time with Him like we see Jesus doing in this gospel. What, what role does prayer, pray, prayer play? Scripturally, Colossians 1.9 is a prayer. Paul is praying for them to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we should pray for this. We should pray for this. Same thing in Ephesians 1.18. In the Scripture, that is a prayer by Paul that the eyes, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. So we must pray. This is, a, this is fighting with prayer. Now why would prayer be a part of your spiritual seeing, your spiritual hearing? Because God gives this. Do you see that? When you read Acts 16, 14, it says the Lord opened her heart so that she was saved. God gives this. We must pray because God gives this. Luke 24, 45 says Jesus 
open their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. You really understand something in such a way that it causes you to worship and it causes you to be full of faith? That's God that does that. We must pray. We've got to pray that God would do this. So let your evangelism be soaked in prayer. Let it be soaked in prayer. There's not one thing you can say to open somebody's eyes. You must pray. You must pray. Preach the gospel in season and out of season, but do not be guilty of prayerless evangelism. Plead with God to open the eyes of lost people. Plead with Him again and again and again. Come back to Him. God, save their souls. Be specific on who you pray for. Pray for them. Pray for a lost person you know. And ask God to open their eyes. Parents, parents in here, let your child training be soaked in prayer. I don't care how great of a, of a parent you are, you cannot open their eyes. You must pray. We must pray. Teach the Word to them. Amen. Like crazy. Be an example to them. Amen. Train them the right way, but do not be guilty of prayerless parenting. you got to ask God to open their eyes. Help them to see. Plead with God to open the spiritual eyes of your children, even other children that are represented here. Let your personal pursuit of God be soaked in prayer. Your personal pursuit of God. As you come to God's Word, Daily, you're coming to the Word of God and you're reading it and you're meditating on this Word and you're memorizing this Word and you're studying this Word and you're digging in because you want to grow because you want to see who God is. You want to see. Don't be guilty of a prayerless pursuit of God. He's got to open your eyes. Pray prayers like, you remember Psalm 119, 18? Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. That guy had physical eyes, Surely. But he's saying, God, open my eyes. He means these spiritual eyes. Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. That you might behold the glory of God and be transformed into the same image. Last little thing I want to say. To anybody here who is not converted, not yet converted. So, you know, everybody here with me. If you're not converted, you don't know Christ. I don't know if you're facing here. But if you don't know Christ, listen to me. Salvation does not come by you doing great things, walking down front of church and saying a prayer. Salvation doesn't, that's not how someone is saved. God has to, He opens your eyes to see. Okay? So I want to ask you that. Have you had, you didn't see Christ. Christ meant nothing to you. He meant nothing. He was just, just bland and boring. And you'd rather go to a football game. You'd rather watch a TV show. And then all of a sudden, Christ becomes glorious to you who died on the cross for your sins. Christ becomes glorious to you. He, he laid down His life for you. He did. He took your sin onto Himself. He took your punishment. He rose from the dead. And He becomes so glorious to you that you can't get enough of it. This is what salvation looks like. Please don't be like these Pharisees that have eternal spiritual blindness. They close their eyes. They reject Him. Turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. I'm ple- I plead with you, turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I do pray, God, that You would do just what You're leading Your disciples toward, God, that You would open our eyes. Oh, that we could see You, Lord, that we could see Your glory. We could behold Your beauty. Everything changes. In Jesus' name, Amen.